Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dead out with episode 327 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again. Silver King sounds a little bit different. That is because I am on a different microphone in a different room in an Airbnb right now on vacation in Naples, Florida. A couple days of sun, beer, pina coladas, and fresh fish have been fantastic. But I'm taking a bit of a break for you to break down every single thing that happened this week in the world of NXT and AEW because I am on vacation and because I want to get back to that vacation. The Silver King is going to do a very short intro today and get right to the meat of the show. So really quick, you know what I'm going to do. Don't forget the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about so be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. The ratings are super important. When you leave a five-star review, we read them live here on the show. We have two new ones that I will read this coming Tuesday on the SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. I just want to, as I said, get through the show as quick as possible. Also, please do not forget to not only follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, but tweet at us, retweet us like our posts, share everything, not just the episodes when we you know, publish, hey, there's a new WWE episode, there's a new NXT and AEW episode, but also just the regular wrestling news and opinions that we share. We want to grow the account and the best way we can do it is by you guys tweeting, retweeting, and liking everything that we do. Not necessarily everything, but you know, the things that you agree with or feel like need to get amplified. It would be great if we had that support from you. So as I said, look, we're going to run through the show. I tried to keep my notes relatively short this week. And hey, maybe this is a format that we'll try to do a little bit more in the future. But we are going to start with NXT this week. We will get to AEW, Dynamite, and Rampage coming up after that. And don't forget the other thing that I always uh, preface these shows with is in our episode descriptions, we will have timestamps for each segment. So if for some reason, you only watch one show or the other, you only want to hear about one show or the other, you will have that opportunity to skip around, but I do hope you listen to the entire show. So like I said, we are going to start with NXT this week, and there was a pretty big angle that ended NXT last week uh, that is going to main event, I guess you could call it, this individual segment, and then we will go ahead and get on with the rest of the show. And that main topic was Cora Jade's turn on Roxanne Perez. So Cora, she came out with the women's tag team title to explain her turn, she said that she should have turned you know, sooner, given she's been the face of the division for the whole last year and the object of everyone's praise. But as soon as Roxanne basically came into NXT, the focus shifted to her instead of Cora, which, by the way, is true. You know, She very quickly became yesterday's news because Roxanne was so impressive. So then uh, she said, well, I finally found a partner that I could trust. I brought her into NXT. Roxy, they win the tag team titles. She immediately decides to go after Mandy's singles championship, Mandy Rose's championship, like a quote-unquote selfish bitch. Cora said she's going to win the Battle Royal. That was scheduled for later in the show, a 20-woman Battle Royal to determine Mandy Rose's number one contender. Then she said the tag team title only represents a lie and dropped it in a trash can, Medusa style, as she said, this would become the generation of Jade. So if you needed an on-the-nose metaphor for the state of the women's tag team division in WWE, that was it. Literally throwing the title in the trash like it's worthless. Let's remember, folks, it is one thing when Medusa did it, 
coming out of then WWF saying, screw them, I'm here now. This is someone doing it with their own brand's title. And I know what you'll say. Well, she wasn't really trashing the title. She was trashing her partner. She didn't throw Roxanne Perez in the trash can. She threw a title in the trash can. Again, treating it like it's worthless. So let me clarify though. Despite not liking the booking here, and I didn't, I said last week, Cora's heel turn was necessary. And this proved that to be correct. She's far more confident on the mic as a heel. And that is not special to her. A lot of people are. This should really help her continue improving her character work and developing, which is what NXT is all about these days. It is developmental. Now that noted, the storyline does actually make sense the way it was laid out by Cora. But again, it was unrealistic for it to play out that way in the first place. I'll be interested to see what Roxanne says next week and what ends up happening with the titles on the website right now. It shows Roxanne Perez and Vacant as the champions, which means that they're not stripping the titles or going to hold a tournament. At least we don't think so. So maybe she has an opportunity to find a new partner. If they do that and she keeps going with the titles and they don't get trashed, great. If they do something like a three-brand tournament or something to crown one new set of women's tag team champions, I'll buy into that, given that's what the titles were supposed to be. But if both sets of titles are gone, or if they use this as a way to write off this set of titles, it's really pathetic booking. And again, it could have just been done a better, different way. You didn't have to do it this way. You could have people win, do an injury angle, you vacate the titles, and then they're gone, right? Like that's another way to do it where you're not treating a championship that you've created like garbage, which they literally did here. Again, I know it was representative of her relationship more than the title itself, but she still threw the title in the trash. Uh, Thomas Scherer at BD Callahan 2. Do they always have a garbage can outside the ring? I don't regularly watch NXT. Y- you know, look, it's one of those things that it happens to be there. Like um, for blood and guts, do they always have a four times as wide timekeeper's table uh, so that someone can fall off the you know double uh, cage or, or cell, whatever you want to call it, into a big foam pit? No, they don't usually have that. No, they don't usually have a trash can at ringside, though they do have trash cans you know, around the ringside area, like in the crowd, obviously, because there's fans that are eating and drinking. Maybe there's a smaller one under the desk, but no, it was a prop. It's wrestling. I don't understand what the point of that really is. Uh, A third QR code was shown on NXT, this time before the main event. It led to a video of some wrestling boots walking in a dark area, and they looked exactly like Zoe Stark's boots, which fit with all the references that we've discussed from the rest of the QR codes that we've gone over the last couple of weeks. So the main event of the show was the 20-woman battle royal. Again, this was for a number one contendership. Nikita Lyons said she would bring the heat in the match and go right after Mandy for the title. Tiffany Stratton and Lash Legend got promos. Indy Hartwell said writing solo has been a rough time, but she's starting to figure things out. Mandy was later asked for her prediction and picked Tatum Paxley for no reason whatsoever. Toxic Attraction was about to ask what's next for the tag team titles when Ivy Nile, Kiana James, and Alba Fire all interrupted. Fire said she'd burn down Rose's toxic empire, take it to the ground. And as you can tell by the way I broke that down, NXT did a good job building this throughout the entire show, given it was the main event. Other notable names, by the way, who were in the match were Electra Lopez, Wendy Chu, and the last person who entered was indeed Zoe Stark, making her return to a huge pop. Uh, so Niall chased Cora backstage at the bell. Fire and Legend eliminated each other. Chu landed on her pillow and was allowed to re-enter. That was a pretty cool spot. Stratton eliminated Chu with her own cup. 
The Casey's took out Lopez and Nile as Lions eliminated them. Paxley stupidly eliminated herself to protect Ivy from a two-on-one attack at ringside. Stratton then pulled a rope down to eliminate Hartwell. That left Stark, Stratton, Lions, and James as the final four. Lions roundhouse kicked James as she flipped in a sixth spot. Stratton then tossed Lions out and posed on the ropes. Stark knocked Stratton off the ropes twice, but saved herself like 1.5 times Stratton did. Stark then countered Stratton's back handspring into a full-release suplex, then pounced her ass off the apron. She starts celebrating on the ropes. No bell rang, so of course it was Cora Jade who ran back into attack, but Stark was able to see her, dodged her, and threw her out of the ring for the win. The crowd went wild for the finish and the winner, and I think it was an absolute no-brainer. The fact that Stark got injured against Toxic Attraction at Halloween Havoc kind of makes it even sweeter. She needs to get strapped up immediately. It would be cool if they played it out to Halloween Havoc, but now she's the number one contender. So I don't exactly know how you make her the number one contender. Don't give her a match soon. But if she has that match, she needs to be the one to win it. This is the title change that needs to happen. There were a couple rough spots from Stratton in the match, but sorry, in the finish of the match. But this was otherwise a really fun battle royal. It enhanced characters. It continued storylines. It was entertaining and it was well booked. It just hit every single facet of what a battle royal needs to accomplish. The only thing it was missing was like some high-flying moves or some really memorable moments, but it was a really solid 3.5 stars B battle royal. Uh, Mac Baird at Maka Baird, uh, M-A-C-A-B-H-A-I-R-D. I, one of those two ways hopefully was correct, man. I, I don't know. Uh, do you think between Cora, Tiffany, and Roxanne, NXT could have their next four horsewomen? It's, it's a good question. Um, so I think, first of all, you would have to probably throw a fourth person in there, which you didn't. I'm not shitting on you. I'm just noting that. And I would probably throw Ivy Nile into that fourth spot. So between those four women, are they the next four horsewomen? You know, it's tough, right? Because right now on the main roster, Bianca Belair and Rhea Ripley just getting called up, they have it all. Like they, they have every single thing you need to succeed. And then you have Raquel Rodriguez, um, and Shotzi, which I know she doesn't get consistent television time, but I think she's awesome. So you have those four women right now. And the four horsewomen, obviously, two of them are currently on TV. Actually, I'm sorry, one of them is currently on TV. Um, one of them seems to be on their way out of the company, and two more are injured slash on vacation and hopefully returning sooner than later. And you can really see that Bianca Belair is carrying a lot of the weight for the entire division right now. So in some ways, you could say they already have their next four horsewomen, and this would maybe be four horsewomen 3.0, right? But the other part of it is the four horsemen women were so unique because they transformed the women's division in WWE and largely women's wrestling in the United States. And their level of talent, not just in the ring, but on the mic, was so exceptional above and beyond what was presently there and what had been there previously. Bianca Belair and Rhea Ripley, they're stepping into that and they're doing a great job, but they're not necessarily changing the game the way those four horsewomen did. And as much as I love Tiffany Stratton, I think she's a huge, bright future. Ivy Nile, Roxanne Perez, to some extent, Cora Jade as well. They're not the four type of women who are going to come in and be transformational in any way. They're just a really good generation of talent. So in some ways, you could say, hey, those four, you know, they're the next people that are going to, you know, reinvigorate the division perhaps, but they're not going to change it the way the four horsewomen did. That probably will never happen again. Uh, J.D. McDonough fought Cameron Grimes. After a few minutes, Joe Gacy appeared in the crow's nest. J.D. worked the knee extensively. 
Grimes hit a great tornado Uranagi, and they exchanged some strong style strikes that got the crowd pretty hyped up before Grimes' foot got caught in the bottom ropes. JD took advantage by ravaging the knee and hitting the Devlin slide for the win. There was no post-match involving Gacy, but he later approached Grimes backstage uh, while he was kind of having a conniption throwing a fit. Grimes just left. Uh, it was a definite banger. Too much of it happened during the commercial break. I went 3.5 stars and a B for this as well. JD obviously had to win given he's debuting and Grimes is in a full downward spiral. But holy shit, please, for the love of all that is holy, do not put Grimes with Gacy. I mean, it's one thing to do a program. I'm going to hate the program. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to hate the program. But it's one thing to do a program. It's another thing to like put him under his wing in the schism or whatever the hell they're calling that. If that shit happens, oh my God, this, the, the amount of sound drops I have on my phone won't be enough to, to cover my anger about that. Uh, Braun Breaker entered midway through the show. Breaker said McDonough had his attention and would pay for his attack. JD talked shit on the Titantron and pr- proved on a mannequin that he knows how to tear someone's shoulder tendon. He basically outlined it like with a Sharpie. JD said Braun may want to fight through the pain, but his brain's not going to let him. And JD is the necessary evil in NXT. Braun screamed at him uh, a few times during his promo, kind of like interrupting him. And he basically said he won't let the injury stop him. The best way to describe this whole thing was awkward. Both of them like did fine, but Braun is way too juiced up to be taken seriously. And JD was almost too mellow for someone brand new trying to make an impact. So the, you know, dichotomy between the two um, the juxtaposition is, is the word I'm looking for. The juxtaposition between both of them in this segment, it just was strange. And I feel like there were so many other ready-made challengers on the brand that I don't understand why they went in this direction. Why are you not elevating Grayson Waller to challenge Braun for the title? Is that because they want him to be the one to beat him for it? Same question with Carmelo Hayes. Why did you put the North American title right back on him when he should be feuding, like that feud he had with Grayson Waller, they should be feuding over who's the number one contender for Braun Breaker's title. Instead, everyone is just removed from Breaker, and he's entered into another feud that, I'm not, look, I like Jordan Devlin, JD McDonough, he's a good wrestler, but it just feels rushed. It feels unnecessary. And really, Braun Breaker's title reign has been very boring ever since the Tommaso Ciampa and Dolph Ziggler era of it ended. And it's, 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 it's not a good title ring. They need to fix it because it's kind of hurting Braun the character as well. Later in the show, Gacy uh, told the dyad it's time to emerge, saying there's no going back. Their hoods were removed and they were baptized like into smoke behind them. When they rose, they looked completely different. Zach Gibson shaved his goatee and is using a contact lens to become Rip Fowler. And James Drake shaved his beard and lightened his hair, I think, to become Jagger Reed. I'm not even sure what's left to say. I've ranted my heart out over the Grizzly Young Veterans over the last month, two months. It's just a sad state of affairs, folks. They massacred our boys. The names aren't terrible, but they basically turned Gibson into Harland without the tattoos. Why anyone would think this works is beyond me. Great value, Bray Wyatt and the Maroon Druids. They remain the worst thing in NXT history. And I think as you can tell, I'm trying not to be loud, but I think as you can tell, my spirit has completely been killed. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Solo Sokoa was shown walking backstage into the loading dock at SmackDown in Orlando last week when Von Wagner attacked him from behind and pounded him into a steel door, saying he just put the street champ on his ass in the street. I, it was actually a pretty good attack to continue the story. Roderick Strong fought Damon Kemp with both guys laid out. The D'Angelo family appeared on screen, having attacked the Creed brothers backstage. 
Kemp wanted to save them when Strong blindsided him with a pumped knee for the win. Then Strong ran backstage for the Creeds with Kemp like stumbling after him because he just got knocked out. Backstage, Strong was pissed that the Creeds allowed themselves to get attacked even four on two. Then he yelled at Kemp being even later to help and said Tony D started it, but they're going to finish it. I loved this entire thing. Later in the show, the Creeds went wild backstage calling out the D'Angelo family with Strong saying he'd put their four against any other four in the company. Julius Creed said they either take the challenge and get their asses beat in the ring or they will hunt them down and do it outside of the ring. D'Angelo later said Diamond Mine needs a dojo because they can't handle the street and then he accepted the challenge. It was actually one of D'Angelo's best promos probably in weeks. Uh, The promos at the end here for the Diamond Mine guys, extremely hot. Julius getting that kind of opportunity to shine, it flashed that potential, that true one day main event potential. You saw it in that moment. If that guy can cut promos like that and wrestle the way he wrestles, it's going to work. He's going to be a major star. Overall, I thought it was really smart booking, perfect character continuation for Strong. They have done a really great job with the storyline. It's probably the best one in NXT right now. Wesley said he's not done with Trick Williams, but Grayson Waller started shit and is going to pay. Wesley said he's heard worse things from people that he actually respects. He plans to wipe the floor with him before continuing his path to finding himself. It was easily Wesley's best promo, probably since the tag team split, and it feels like he's finally coming into his own. Mello and Trick were in the barbershop talking their talk. Mello dismissed Sokoa, Von Wagner, Giovanni Vinci, and Apollo Cruz as challengers. Mello said Wesley was talking smack about Trick, so he said Waller's going to lie and Wesley's going to cry. This was easily the best barbershop segment they've done. A lot of them have just really fallen flat. This one had a direction. Both of them cut really good promos. And it was just the most realistic of the bunch. Like you actually believe they could be in the barbershop having this conversation where some of the other ones didn't really feel real. They didn't really feel legitimate. Uh, Giovanni Vinci was asked by a fan for a picture in the parking lot. He accepted, took their phone and took a photo of himself. I legitimately laughed out loud. I thought it was hysterical. Then she asked for a picture together and he said no, even funnier. Uh, Chase U got off their tour bus from the airport uh, that blocked his car. And he was pissed off about that. So I'm sure he's going to fight Andre Chase next week. This was so simple and effective. Vinci, the repackage, you know, the name, say what you will. The repackage has been great for Fabian Eichner so far. Zion Quinn was pleased with how he screwed over Apollo Crews last week. He was excited about getting a match next week. Zion said he doesn't care about Apollo, but respects his accomplishments, even if he couldn't cut it on the main roster. Then he said he's the X Factor, which I guess is his new nickname. And that's going to be on full display next week. Again, I think it was Zion's best promo, top to bottom, that he's given so far. We had an NXT UK Tag Team Championship match, and the fact that it's this late in the show tells you all really need to know about how important it was, as to say, not that important. Uh, Briggs and Jensen fought pretty deadly. Fallon Henley got run into outside the ring and appeared to legitimately injure her elbow. It was really tough to tell. She either did a great job selling it or she legitimately hurt herself. Uh, This was a good back and forth match. Good power versus finesse action. Deadly tried to trick the referee by sliding a title to Briggs into the ring so the other one could be used on him, but Henley stopped the attack, the champions hit high-low, and they retained the titles. It was actually a far better match than I expected. While I'm not a fan of Jensen, and I've said it numerous times, and it's, I don't mean to offend the guy, I'm just not a huge fan, uh, they've both clearly elevated their game as a tag team over the last couple of months, and you do need to give them credit for that. Uh, and lastly, Axiom made his in-ring debut against Dante Chen. Just like Nathan Frazier, Axiom had some awesome, unique entrance, like graphics, like trailing lights, 
behind him. And I don't even know what to call that effect. I'm sure some of you do who are into video games and other stuff, but like, it just looked freaking cool. Uh, he was called the mathematical superhero, which I mean, it's super convoluted, but his black and gold luchador look was great. He had a flying crossbody and a flying sidekick to the jaw for the win. The only thing I would have liked to have seen a little bit more is some more high risk moves here. You have this guy, he's a superhero. You're talking about him flying. Doesn't really fly, right? Kind of want to see him fly. Um, but it was still a strong debut. And with Axiom, so far, so good. I'm in. So as you can tell, after a few weeks of me being pretty down on NXT, I really thought they turned a corner this week and got back to basics. Just good, strong promos. The matches that we got were all legitimate. I don't think any of them um, were notably short. Maybe Axiom and Dante Chen was short. But everything else either told the story or it was entertaining wrestling. And there was a limited number of matches on the show too, which is totally different. Sometimes they shove like seven, eight matches onto the show. This week, there were five matches and all of them had a purpose, either from a storytelling standpoint or an in-ring standpoint. So again, thumbs up uh, for NXT, actually two thumbs up for NXT this week, which recently I've not been very pleased. So I was very happy and optimistic that perhaps they've turned a corner there. So that said, let's move over to AEW. We're going to talk Dynamite and Rampage all mixed together based on storylines and topics, starting with the most important and kind of working our way uh, down through what's going on there. And we need to start, we absolutely need to start with the main event of Dynamite, Chris Jericho versus Eddie Kingston, barbed wire everywhere. I should also note before I start here, because I did forget, this is technically week two of Fighter Fest. So week two, show three of Fighter Fest, which is happening for no reason whatsoever. I'll get to that later. Uh, so again, Jericho Kingston, barbed wire everywhere. Jericho Appreciation Society entered in a shark cage uh, that was supposed to be suspended above the ring for reasons, I guess, to prevent them from interfering. But they were suspended on the side of the ring instead of on top of it and hardly in the air. Like they could have climbed out and jumped down and been relatively safe. It is shark week for Turner. So I understand why they used the shark cage. It just seemed nonsensical. They could have done it in a far better way and and had it, or just do a match, you know, shark-themed match. I, I, don't, I don't know. There's a million different things you could do that would, would have been better than what they actually did here. Uh, Ruby Soho also sat ringside for really no defined reason. Obviously, she had gotten attacked by JAS, but why she was at ringside when everyone else was in a shark cage, I have no idea. Uh, Jericho made his painmaker entrance. Kingston went right after him with a barbed wire microphone. There was blood 20 seconds into the match. Jericho did a hurricanrana into the barbed wire. It was then said Ruby had keys to the shark cage. Why did she have keys to the shark cage? I can't answer that for you. Kingston suplexed Jericho into a barbed wire table outside. Ty Conti randomly ran down to attack Ruby. Then Anna J pulled her off only to attack Ruby in a heel turn. Anna lowered the shark cage with a button that was at ringside that just it was on one of many buttons on this machine, and she, she knew exactly which one to hit. So the shark cage comes down. Conti gets the key from Ruby because she knocked her out. She's trying to unlock it. She can't. I don't know what, it's, what it is with wrestlers and locks these days, but they all seem to struggle unlocking them. She can't unlock it. So two of the thinner guys, I think Danny Garcia and one of the 2.0 dudes, literally just slid through the rungs, the bars of the cage, and just escaped, attacked Kingston. I think it eventually got unlocked. And by the time the other ones came in, like Jake Hager, who obviously couldn't fit through those bars, uh, he literally just stood over Kingston's body 
and stomped him one time. And that was the totality of his attack. So of course, the faces come down to try to make the save. Jericho ate a mad ball to the face. Kingston suplexed him into a barbed wire table for a near fall. Jericho countered a barbed wire chair shot with a code breaker for a 2.5. There was some lion salt spot. Kingston hit Jericho with the back fist for a near fall. Kingston wrapped a barbed wire around Jericho and put him into a stretch submission to finally achieve his goal. But Sammy Guevara interfered. And by the way, Sammy Guevara, despite being in the Jericho Appreciation Society, was not in the shark cage. Jericho then hit Judas Effect with barbed wire wrapped around his arm for the win. After the bell, Jericho went for extracurricular attacks when Kingston did a low blow to Sammy and threw Jericho into some barbed wire filled area that looked like it was like an empty sandbox or like a spring pad, or I don't even know what it was. Look, I had a three word response for this live while watching. What the fuck? Like, seriously, what the fuck was this booking? Do you know how difficult it is to overbook a barbed wire match? JAS did whatever they wanted. And again, Sammy and Ty, despite being in the faction, were not in the shark cage stipulation. That's completely nonsensical. BCC, when they ran down, got completely negated. The random women's storyline thrown in here was unnecessary. I'm glad they at least did a women's storyline, but it it didn't play into this. And Jericho beating Kingston again was absurd. I mean, seriously, who booked this shit? It was awful. Why is this storyline still going? Like, this shit should have ended at blood and guts with Kingston tapping Jericho out on top of the cell. This was truly awful on every potential level. And honestly, to some degree, it was actually kind of shameful. Market zero. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. So I got a couple tweets here on this. Jason Gentry wrote in WCW 2.0. Greg Heminger had a much longer rant at Heminger Greg. Uh, along the same lines that he said, this reminded me of Russo-era WCW booking. The more impressive the roster becomes, the more bloated and convoluted the television. Let me clarify, Russo-era WCW booking, that roster was not strong. I mean, a lot of those guys had already gone to WWE. Uh, He said, well, look, these days, it's not good enough to say, well, WWE sucks too. 2022 has been a regression in quality for AEW. My interest is fading. I felt more of an attachment to Dynamite mid-pandemic when they had a lean skeleton roster with coherent storylines and quality work rate. The product is a self-indulgent mess right now that only MJF could save. TK needs to share the pen, self-inflicted wounds by TK. Too much too soon. He had a good thing going and now it's bloated and confusing. Good leaders learn to delegate and he is micromanaging this company into ruins. Overbooked vanity project. All right, I read that because there are beacon, there are like individual nuggets of truth in there. But overall, I think, Greg, you're being far too critical of AEW. And this is coming from someone who's on the more critical side of AEW. I think people need to remember one important thing right now. You could make a legitimate argument that AEW's four biggest stars or four of its five biggest stars. You know what? I'm changing that. Four of its six biggest stars are currently out of action. The two that are in action are John Moxley and Chris Jericho. But those that are out of action are Kenny Omega, Brian Danielson, CM Punk, and MJF. And, you know, two of them are for injuries. Brian is for concussion reasons, which I know is injury adjacent, but I'm just saying. And MJF is part of a storyline. So they are operating right now without four huge pieces to the company. However, 
Other big pieces that are, are active and are available are barely being utilized. Like, I know Andrade's appearing on television. He doesn't have a storyline for himself. Nothing that is you're going to sink your teeth into. Malachi Black is doing this thing with Darby Allen and Sting. We'll get to that in a little bit. And you just kind of like, you know, Keith Lee and Swerve, they won the tag team championships. That's great. But again, they have been focusing on tag teams that are, you know, two individuals that have been put together, which is fine. And, and those are all legitimate ways to create tag teams. But they had and have the strongest tag team roster ever assembled. And they're ignoring many of the actual tag teams or long-term tag teams that they have in the company. So yeah, I, I do think what, Greg, the point that you made that is correct is that 2022 has been a regression in quality for AEW. It just has. There are moments that are great. There are, you know, individual shows that are fantastic. There's been some dynamites this year that are easily the best TV episodes that I've seen this year. But there's also been some episodes of Rampage, let's say, that are easily the worst episodes of TV I've seen this year, with the exception, of course, of SmackDown a couple weeks ago. And there's been some episodes of Dynamite where you just look around and you're like, what the hell did I just watch? This episode of Dynamite and that main event that we got on Wednesday, that was one of those. And lastly, Jordan at LSU Jordan 45, why have Kingston lose if he's just going to stand tall 30 seconds later? I have no idea. This should have been the end of it. Blood and Gut should have been the end of it. I suppose they're pushing it to all out and they're going to let Kingston get his moment in front of a crazy Chicago crowd. And there is some legitimacy to that, but what the hell is the match going to be? What's the booking? Is there a stipulation? Is it best two of three falls? Iron 30 minute Iron Man? You know, if they do something like that, then maybe the payoff will be worthwhile. But right now, it's just the same thing over and over again, as Roman Reigns might say. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. <laughs> and the tribal chief, the head of the table, we're not interested in that. No, no. No one's interested in that. And that's what we're getting right now. I'll keep going on Dynamite. Uh, John Moxley, the AEW champion, and Wheeler Yuta, sorry, interim champion, uh, fought best friends. Mox went wild on both guys before catching Trent Beretta flying with a cutter for a near fall. Then he stomped his head with both best friends, hitting three pile drivers for a near fall on Yuta. Yuta then ate strong zero for a broken fall. Mox put Trent Beretta in a figure four outside as Yuta ate an exploder suplex. He then countered into a seatbelt pinning combination for the win. Good match and finish. 3.5 stars B. Mox kind of felt like an afterthought in the match, which should not be the case for the AEW interim world champion. On Rampage, Kings of the Black Throne fought John Silver and Alex Reynolds of Dark Order. Dark Order hit all of their double team moves with Malachi Black breaking the fall with a flying shotgun dropkick. Then he black masked Silver with King hitting Dante's Inferno for the win. Darby Allen jumped off the tunnel to attack King as he exited. Sting then appeared without his bat to stare down Black with nothing happened. The Black Sting stare down was really the only memorable moment of the opening 10 minutes. And it was kind of the only thing I liked on Rampage in totality. But if you're Sting and you're coming out to go face to face with Malachi Black, who spits Black Mist and blah, 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 wouldn't you have your bat? It seemed weird that he wouldn't. Uh, on Rampage, Miro cut another Redeemer promo at Malachi Black, asking if he sent House of Black to destroy him or recruit him. Good as usual, but also kind of the same as usual. What are they doing? Are they building a six-man match with... Miro, Sting, and Darby Allen against House of Black. I don't know where Buddy Matthews is. Is he hurt? Um, that's something that I probably need to find out and should have before I did the show. He's disappeared. I'm just not exactly sure what's going on there. So on Dynamite, we had Brody against Darby. 
This opened the show. Brody murdered Darby until he tapped, uh, taped him, sorry, King's legs together midway through the match and hit a tope. Brody missed some big moves and then ate a code red. Kingston escaped a rear naked choke with a cannonball, then choked Darby out of the ring, you know, over the apron for a callback to the uh, Royal Rampage match, the finish of that match. Darby beat the count at 9.5 before Brody hit the Gonzo Bomb for the clean win over Darby Allen. He attacked after the bell, leading Sting out to avoid and no-sell all of his moves. The lights went out. Black appeared for another face-to-face. Brody choked Sting with Malachi spitting the mist in his face as Sting got choked out. Then Miro's music hit, but he stopped midway up the ramp and nothing else happened. This was a really big victory for Brody King. But having it come at the expense of Darby Allen just seemed a little strange. Not totally sure about that decision. I don't think it hurts Darby. Uh, and it does definitely help King. So perhaps that was a good move. Uh, then AEW had Sting get dominated before Miro comes out. And he stands there and does nothing. The interactions are cool. But the storyline, it's just so nonsensical. And then when you consider like Miro's probably supposed to be a baby face right now, shouldn't he be running down and clearing house and picking... Sting up and picking Darby up and helping them. It's just very, very weird. On Rampage, the Lucha Bros fought Private Party. Even though the AFO is over, Party is still aligned with Andrade Alidolo, apparently, who was at ringside. The match started on fire, but then got really slow after commercial break getting to the finish. Penta Oscuro fell off the top rope in a botch. He put Marquen into Isaiah Cassidy with a Death Valley driver before hitting Made in Japan. Jose and Abrahantes brawled at ringside for the 50th time. Penta super kicked Andrade off the apron. Roosh ran down and cheap shotted Penta, but Penta no sold the cheap shot and immediately hit a Canadian destroyer. And when I say immediately, I mean immediately. Phoenix then hit Black Fire Driver for the win. This started well. The final two minutes was an absolute fucking mess. I am not exaggerating when I say this. I think it may have been the worst Lucha Brothers match I've ever seen. And I say that because I love all of their matches. I did not like this match at all. On Dynamite, Swerve on Our Glory had a championship celebration. Fans sang Keith Lee's whole deal, then gave Swerve a You Deserve It chant. Kevin Gates, the rapper, was in the crowd. They had a quick moment before Mark Sterling and Tony Nese interrupted to say Swerve will stab Keith in the back. Sterling tried to get Gates to sign his petition to fire Swerve. He refused, so Sterling said his music sucks. Gates then punched Nice, and Swerve put a cake in Sterling's face. The entire thing was like kind of a waste of time. This is supposed to be the best tag team division on the planet, right? Swerve in Our Glory is starting out by continuing a feud with Tony Nese and Mark Sterling. There's nothing you can do better for them. I know that the purpose of this was for Gates to punch Nice and get mainstream attention, which they did. TMZ, XXL, you know, there are places that wrote about this. And that's pretty cool for AEW. It was smart to do it. But why don't you do that at like the beginning of it? and then present their first real challengers for the titles. I thought this was awful top to bottom. Again, the Gates thing, well-placed, smartly done, but to not have more surrounding Swerve in Our Glory was a really big disappointment for me. On Dynamite, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus fought Varsity Blondes. Luchasaurus chokeslammed one blonde into another, with Christian covering for the win in 90 seconds. Jungle Boy then returned with a chair after the bell. He stood off with Luchasaurus, who just stepped aside. Christian ran through the crowd with Jungle Boy chasing him. So just clarify, what exactly was the point of turning Luchasaurus dark heel, whatever you want to call it, if all it takes is a return of Jungle Boy looking at him to bring him right back to the light? 
This was very lackluster and disappointing. Christian had already jumped the shark with his promos. Now I believe this entire angle has jumped the shark. Very, very poor. On Dynamite, uh, there was an FTW title match out of nowhere. Ricky Starks against Cole Carter. And Cole Carter, if you need to be reminded, is two dimes from NXT who got fired. It seems because he failed some type of drug test. We don't know exactly what it was. There was an awful backstage segment between these two. Carter hit a big cutter for a near fall, but missed a 450. Starks then hit a spear for the win to retain the title. After the bell, Starks asked for another challenge. Danhausen entered, and Starks delayed the match to next week. So this booking here, and I'm, I'm trying to be nice, but this booking here kind of told you everything you need to know about AEW. Tony Khan didn't give a shit that Carter failed a drug test. He just threw him onto Dynamite because, hey, it's a former WWE guy that I can feature and people can say, oh, look, Tony Khan's giving this guy a chance. He threw him onto Dynamite for that reason. Heaven forbid he add a second women's match to the show or feature someone else to go up against Ricky Starks from the massive roster. No, let's put Carter on TV because he used to be in WWE. Now, I saw some people on social media excuse this because, hey, it was a squash or it's going to be a squash match. It wasn't a squash match. It went six minutes. Carter got a lot of offense in on Starks. So you have Starks, an FTW champion, which is a title that isn't recognized, but it's still defended on television occasionally, but never really against, I mean, you know, in the past, it's been against legitimate people, but not recently, right? And you just throw a title opportunity to Cole Carter out of nowhere rather than someone else decent on the show. Terrible decision-making. And now Starks is going to defend against Danhausen. How does that help him even one iota? I have to assume the eventual end game for this is going to be Hook winning the FTW title off Starks, one would presume. Maybe then Starks goes after the TNT title, but then you have Wardlow as champion. Are you really going to let Starks beat Wardlow? Maybe if Powerhouse Hobbs helps him. I'm trying to book ahead. I'm trying to think ahead here. I just don't really get it. Starks is so hot right now that you have to assume they're trying to do the hook rivalry, but Starks shouldn't lose a title or a match to Hook, who's very inexperienced, even though Hook obviously would make a lot of sense as FTW champion. This goes back to what I've said previously. Team Taz, does it still exist? Why don't they interact together? Why isn't Taz ever with them? He's only on commentary now. All of this stuff, it's just continued problems that I'm having with the booking of these guys. On Rampage, Athena and Chris Statlander fought Charlotte and Robin Renegade. The faces hit running dropkicks. The bell rang after 45 seconds of action. Athena immediately hit the O face and won in 20 seconds. I am not exaggerating that time. Layla Gray of the baddies tried to attack but failed. Then Jade Cargill and Kiara Hogan ran in with Jade taking Athena out with one move and no resistance. Absolutely horrendous segment top to bottom. So then on Dynamite, we get Jade and Kiara against Athena and Willow Nightingale. This was supposed to be a six-woman tag team match, but there was some type of clearance issue. Jermaine Dupree came down with them. Cargill called herself that bitch three different times. Jade tagged in late, avoiding an inside cradle and hitting a spinning powerbomb plus Jaded for the win in nine minutes. The entire thing just felt meaningless. The only other women's story on TV other than this was Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter interrupting Thunder Rosa and Tony Storm yet again, in the same backstage area. And that was problematic too. You have Britt out here calling back to like IWC shit about Rosa sandbagging, 
putting her in a spot where how is she going to respond to that in a promo? She's already a relatively tough promo because she's not completely fluent in the language, even though she does a really good job. And you want her to sit here and then explain how that wasn't true and people made it up. And it's just, it was dumbfounding to me. Britt Baker no-sells in the ring and she no-sells out of the ring. She treats her opponents and her rivals like they're worthless, which is the exact opposite of what a good heel is supposed to do. They're supposed to build up baby faces, win or lose. Look at the way Paul Heyman talks about all of Roman Reigns' opponents. Oh my God, this guy is one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. He would definitely be WWE champion if Roman Reigns was not champion. Thunder Rosa, she is one of the best women's wrestlers in the world, but Thunder, you shouldn't be going head to head with me because I'm better than you. Like, just something along that line, but that's not what Britt Baker does. She legitimately goes out there trying to bury all of her opponents and never makes them look good in or out of the ring. And it's it's getting tiresome at this point. On Rampage, Gun Club was out to explain their turn on the acclaimed. The entire explanation from Billy Gunn, I'm not even kidding you, was sometimes you got to drop the hammer. That was the explanation for turning. Acclaimed charged the ring without a mic. Billy tried to make peace with a scissor. Anthony Bowens completely missed a super kick, but the acclaim cleared the ring to stand tall. He got a couple of quick rhymes from Max Caster. And then on Dynamite, there was a one-on-one uh, rap battle challenge. It's fine for a low-card feud. Nothing too bad, but if you're going to have someone turn heel or turn on an opponent or partner or whatever the case, at least have an explanation ready. They didn't have one ready here. On Dynamite, Butcher and Blade attacked Dark Order for seemingly no reason backstage. You guys can tell me if I missed something. Hangman Page made the save. That was it. So this is what Hangman Page is doing right now. He's completely fallen off. There's four major stars out of the company right now. Hangman, one of their biggest faces, doing backstage save seg- uh, you know, attack save segments for Dark Order. This is something you put on Rampage or Dark. You don't use Hangman for it. On Rampage, there was an ROH World Championship match. Jonathan Gresham against Lee Moriarty. Extremely fun wrestling match. Good chain moves in technical wrestling. Counters. Exciting stuff both ways. Gresham eventually won with the octopus hold, forcing Moriarty to tap once he got him onto the canvas. 3.5 stars and a B for this also. After the bell, Gresham said he would be on AEW Weekly from now on. He said he'd outclass all the fans' favorites because he's the best wrestler in the world. Tully Blanchard then repeated what Gresham said. Suddenly, Claudio Castanoli entered and nothing happened. We already know Gresham Claudio is going to be a championship match at Death Before Dishonor. So I'm not sure why he didn't go face-to-face, develop a storyline, get a verbal challenge. It was just kind of a wasted opportunity. On Rampage, Stokely Hathaway approached Moriarty backstage, offering his services. Instead, Matt Seidel ripped up his card and said he wanted Moriarty to fight Dante Martin. They shook hands over peace, love, and wrestling. And this was whatever. But I did find it funny that Gresham said, you're going to see me on AEW every week now. And he literally was not on the next show, Dynamite. And maybe he'll be on this coming Rampage, but he wasn't on Dynamite, which is my point. On Dynamite, FTR was excited. They got a positive reaction from the fans. Cash Wheeler said their last match with the Briscoes was great, but there was no chance they'd take the titles from them in the two of three falls match at Death Before Dishonor. Dax Harwood then told a story about his daughter, uh, or niece, I'm sorry, I forget which one, overcoming a hole in her heart to survive. Comparing that to their challenge against the Briscoes, it was like a two-minute in-ring segment. It felt rushed and kind of inconsequential, but it was really nice uh, that Dax got that kind of reaction and that his family member obviously did as well. And they're now selling a shirt on AEW shop that I actually re- retweeted where all the proceeds go, I think, to the American Heart Association. So if you feel like it, that would be a pretty damn cool uh, shirt to get. Uh, I'm not going to do an ultimate preview of Ring of Honor, Death Before Dishonor. 
it does seem to be a strong card, like really good in-ring action. But other than FTR retaining the titles and Claudio winning the ROH title, I'm not really sure there's much else to go over. So those are my predictions, and we'll talk about it next week if anything notable happens. Uh, Fight for the Fallen was also announced for next week, and it, to me at least, completely came out of nowhere. I didn't realize they were doing that. AW after next week will have a run of six special episodes out of seven weeks of TV. I've said this for weeks now, and I've said it before too. If every single Wednesday and or Friday is a special show, none of them are special shows. It's completely overdone and ridiculous at this point. And it feels like Tony Khan is booking this purely because if he doesn't have a debut or a return, the only way he feels that he can pop ratings is to do a special episode of television. And it's just not working. I mean, the ratings have improved now that the NBA is over and good for them. I'm glad. But there's no discernible difference one week to the next for all these special shows. Sean McDermott on Board Brother, he points out Battle of the Belts is going to be either taped or live on August 5th with Dynamite on August 10th titled Quake by the Lake because it's in Minneapolis. So we're already having two more special events into the early part of August. Now, Battle of the Belts is fine on its own because that's a special show on a special day, I believe Saturday night, that they have contracted with TNT. But given the date that it's going to happen on August 5th or get taped on August 5th, it's even more reason not to surround it with all these other special editions of Dynamite. When they promote Battle of the Belts and want people to tune in on a Saturday night for it, people are going to be like, why do I need to tune in for that? I just saw two weeks of Fighter Fest, Fight for the Fallen, Blood or Guts, Road Rager. I mean, it's it's nonstop at this point. If you want Battle of the Belts to feel special and if you want good ratings for those special shows, you need to let them stand kind of on their own. Maybe don't do special TV shows for the two weeks preceding it and the two weeks succeeding it. Instead, we just had, we're going to have six, seven, eight weeks of special TV episodes, and it's just really getting ridiculous at this point. So look, that is it, folks, this week for our full breakdowns of AEW and NXT. I really appreciate everyone uh, listening to the show. As always, a reminder, of course, please do not forget. It's all about the five. It's all about the five here on Getting Over. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings and reviews. If you leave a five-star review, we will read it live here on the show. Please do not forget to follow us at Getting Overcast on Twitter and tweet, retweet, share our stuff. Um, Reply to us, DM us questions and comments for the show. We will try to get more of that fan interaction on the program. I know that we used to do it very heavily. We slacked a little bit, mostly the Silver King's fault. We will get back to it, as you saw on today's show. Thank you all once again. We will see you next week on Tuesday for our WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview. And of course, at the end of that week, WWE SummerSlam Instant Analysis as soon as that show goes off the air on Saturday. But at this point, the Silver King is going to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.